Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on January 25th, 2017. Today, as we digest the rapidly unfolding economic policy agenda of the young Trump administration, we'll discuss the impacts of some of the proposed changes, including the possibility of a 35% tax on imported goods and the key cabinet positions that will impact the economy immediately. The short version, pay close attention and be ready to shift your investment strategy with the changing landscape. So, Ronaldo, before we get into predictions, do you want to give some opening thoughts on the current state of affairs? Yeah, I thank you very much, Matt. It's um, it's an amazing time to be alive. You know that old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. And I think everybody's feeling that. Um, we've made a commitment on this program, which we announced last December, or last November, that we would um, do everything we could to keep politics or political observations to a minimum and really focus on the economics, using politics as one source of data for that focus on economics. Because we think what people really want the most, and now... It's really clear after the first few weeks of the Trump administration, first week, people want help knowing what to do. They want to know what guys like me were paid for and are paid a fortune to tell people who have lots of money how to keep their money or grow their money, how to protect themselves. And this show is really about giving what I call the little guy or the little woman a break so that they will know what the big guys know without having to go to trouble learning it or paying somebody like me to tell them. So that this show is really here for you. And... I say that because when you hear a political comment on this show, I want you to know it's going to be grounded to some economic principle. Let me give you an example. Right now, we just ended an era, the Obama era, and I can't make the observation I'm about to make without naming the guy who was involved in that era, Obama. And as Matt knows, I have some serious difficulties with some of the things that, about Barack Obama, and there's many things about what he did I am extremely appreciative of. So this is not a blanket endorsement or a challenge. It's merely to say the facts are now in. So the Obama era, as in, we can now measure from beginning to end what happened. And we had the longest period of economic growth in the history of the United States, even beyond Clinton's growth. So we, 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 we've added uh, all these jobs month after month. We've come from the depths of the worst recession since the Great Depression, and it was almost a depression itself. We've, um, the, the, the automobile industry got rescued. Uh, is now worldwide and competitive, and when it was rescued, it was uh, a management disaster on every level, with one exception being Ford, perhaps. So what we're doing now is we're looking at that those jobs got created. Um, a lot of foreign troops, American troops overseas, got brought home, not all of them by far. Wars have been toned down. You know, There's other things we can pick on. But in the process of that doing, we started to close, for the first time since the 70s, the wealth gap, meaning the amount of money people have in their pockets who are the wealthiest versus the amount of money people have in their pockets who are the average people. And that differential, meaning the the, the rich got richer and the middle class got worse off year after year after year since the 70s, it finally closed in 2016 and went in the other direction. I don't believe that will continue. I believe that the economic policies we're looking at are fraught with peril for the common man. Now, that's not a comment about Donald Trump's personality. Uh, It's not a comment about anything political as much as it is to take the summary view of what is coming at the American public and to try to discern what the likely outcome will be for everybody's best financial interests. And I say this with, um, with a great deal of chagrin because in my adult life, I have never been before in a situation where I felt less comfortable trying to predict the future with any specificity than I do today. And the reason for that is I'm not sure what Mr. Trump's plan is. Um, I'm not even sure he has one. and I'm not even sure if it changes from day to day or from whoever he's talking to. But when I look at the initial indications of the economic impact of the Trump agenda, it appears to me that the tax breaks for the rich are going to happen. That the, it appears to me that there's almost nothing that's going to help the little guy except a large construction project, which I think is really good. And I'm glad that the Democrats are supporting infrastructure spending. We've argued for many years on this program that was overdue. 
Um, and I think that's going to be a real plus. So I want to give Trump credit for that one. On the other hand, tripling the number of ICE agents, cracking down on, on cities who don't want to turn in immigrants, uh, is going to have a disruptive effect on the economy. And probably the most disruptive effect, and, and when we're speaking today, this is being the, taped on the 25th of January, 2017, and the Dow Jones has just hit 20,000. I'm going to end my overview comments on that. But as we look at the number of things that Trump has proposed that business likes, uh, they like the idea of bringing home billions and billions of dollars from overseas that have been sitting there tax-free and paying a small uh, one-time fee to get it back. Business loves that. Business loves the idea of lower corporate taxes. Business loves the idea of lower higher income taxes. But what business doesn't love is business doesn't love runaway inflation. Business doesn't love deficit spending. Business doesn't love many of the things that are the byproducts of some of these early day Trump indications. Now, some of the things that the Trump folks will do have very little short-term implications and have very great long-term implications. There are other things they will do, which I think could have significant short and long-term implications. And what we'll try to do in this show is we'll try to tell you about those as they happen. And for those of you who are not following, I started tweeting again at, at Ronaldo Brutico. And what I'm doing is I'm sending out financial bulletins between shows. I've already commented on a number of different financial matters, including one you'll hear about today on my position on gold and oil. Uh, so if you want to know what I'm thinking between shows so you can adjust more quickly, please follow that Twitter feed. Now, the point I want to make about the markets, though, and the markets right now are happy because they can see a lot of things that could work in their, their best interest. However, part of why the Dow Jones went up today was because of the incorrect belief that oil stocks will be doing much better under the, under the Trump administration. That's categorically false. Oil stocks will not do better under the Trump administration. I'll explain more later why. So that's going to trouble the markets. But let me tell you what's really going to trouble. The trouble, the markets are, are all psychological. Markets react based on what they think and feel the public's going to think and feel. So they're always trying to read the tea leaves. In order to do that, the markets require clarity and they require the confidence that there's credibility in the source of information they're listening to. I'm most troubled from an economic perspective over the way this administration Trump has started because I believe the markets are already having a problem trusting what comes out of the White House. Many commentators have talked about this in the last week. I don't want to be one more of them. And I'm not, and I'm not just saying that it makes no sense for Trump to make a big deal about how many people went to his inauguration because it's the wrong conversation. But to say that he had a million and a half people and it was the biggest one ever, when there are pictures of side by side of 2009 and 2017 that prove conclusively that's a lie, and he doesn't want to acknowledge that, it makes people in the markets go, oops, we have to figure out how he's going to color the facts so we can read the facts. And this is a key issue for the markets. The markets are always trying to figure out how will this be colored? And the answer usually, in my adult life, has been understand the underlying policies and you'll know how that individual, that president, whether it's Obama or, frankly, Clinton or Bush one or Bush two or um, even Reagan, though you... you you, you can interpret what they do and say by what you know to be their policy objectives, and that gives you the ability to filter it with some predictability. No one knows, for sure not me, but I don't know of anybody who knows, what his policy objectives really are going to be. There are some early indications. He wants to do everything he can to help oil. It, it, it won't work. The, doubt, the long-term glut of oil is not reversible. The... Um, the the thing he wants to do is um, he wants to show that he's a builder because he's a construction guy. I think he will do a great job building things. Uh, I think he wants to show that he is tough on immigrants. Fine. He wants to build a wall. No money's been allocated for it by the Congress. No, so I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to happen. I don't know where he's going to steal the money from to do it. Whatever, we'll see. But the credibility issues that he stirred up initially with the how many people attended his inauguration... And then this other whopper he told that there's three to five million people who voted illegally, which even his own party said there's absolutely no basis for it. Lindsey Graham on television this morning on CBS said that I don't know why he would say it. It isn't true. I don't know. But Paul Ryan said it isn't. You know, he doesn't know of it. 
So there's no facts at all to, ba to back this up whatsoever. So to throw that out there and then to, and then to stand firm on it and not, and not walk it back tells the markets, we don't know what this guy is thinking. And part of the question I'm increasingly asked by business people is, do you think he is thinking? In other words, is, is he clever, so clever that he's got some secret plan we just can't understand? Or is what we see what we get? And if that's the case, if what we see is what we get, we've got a situation where it can change on a moment's notice. And that creates what's called uncertainty. So whenever you see a financial column and the author says, unfortunately, this is introducing uncertainty into the markets. Uncertainty in the markets is a, is a buzzword. It's a term of art. And what it means is lack of predictability, which then causes you to deflate values due to your expectations. So where are we today? We're at 4.7% unemployment. Uh, we've had 70-some uh, months of continuous job expansion, economic expansion. We crawled out of that recession. We, For the last two or three years, we've been the strongest economy on the globe in the Western world and probably in the top 10, certainly top 5 to 10. Globally, China, uh, India, I guess, was the number one country in growth last year. China, number two. And I'd have to look and see who the other countries were that were smaller that were up there. Uh, but of all the Western industrial democracies, we were the largest one that's consistently grown year over year, including last year. So we are poised with a lot of wind to our backs. we got a lot going right, including, as this show has talked about frequently, the rise in wages of the lowest paid people in our society. So the increase in the minimum wage, which has been hitting, uh, again, more states. I know California just bumped it up to 1050. And what that does is it causes wages above it to go higher. So the entry-level job in California is now 1050 and soon to be on its way to 15. You have companies like Walmart who resisted waging raises forever. Now they're clearly going to be, they're doing it. So both the private sector and the government sector are raising the bottom people on the rung of the ladder. However, if 20 million people lose their insurance and it's not replaced, uh, or if um, 15 million people lose it and 5 million are put into what are called assigned risk pools, the 5 million in those risk pools are going to have dramatically less money to spend and possibly no money to spend. So for everything you do that will, you think might help, you got to be aware of what would be the unintended consequence. And I think that's where we are. The, 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 my summary statement is I can't see the future with any clarity, although I can see certain trends that I'm going to predict for you in a, in a minute. I feel that it's too hard to know where we're going because I don't know the people at the top actually do know. And it's more right now about saying no to things than it is to telling me what where the yes is. Yeah, and I think to add to that, you know, the, the piece that's so confusing in some ways is the incoherence of the transition so far. Yeah. Right? So you're getting mixed messages even between Trump himself, his spokespeople, and the cabinet secretaries that they've put up for a review. Uh, some are saying they want to cut Social, Social Security and Medicare. Others are saying they, they won't. Some are saying that they're interested in uh, reviving some of the, the harsh interrogation practices and things like that. Some are saying they won't. Don't call them harsh interrogation. Call them what they are, torture. Well, there's, there's the torture guy, too. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, there's also rendition, which is the other piece. I th this whole thing is, is a bit of an enigma, and I think you know, trying to figure out if there's a coherent through line is essentially a question of who's going to actually be in charge of these, these well, you know, I think that's a great point. And, and, and what we'll be watching for in the weeks and months ahead, will this be a situation of a kind of Louis XIV style of management, the Sun King? Everything started with the king and went wherever he said. And in a moment's notice, you could lose the king's favor and someone else was in your place. And for a, an absolute monarch you could make the case that that can work sometimes. Although, I believe almost every absolute monarch that ever lived was eventually, his, he or his lineage were tossed out. So Louis XIV made it, but the 16th didn't, right? So, you know, Versailles had this little nasty thing happen to them. Right. Okay, so, so the, 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 the issue really is, is he going to attempt a monarchical style, which one could think he might, given that he likes to sit on gold chairs and he likes this... All the, he, he, I think he envisions himself somewhat of a monarch. And he has loyalty tests. And he has loyalty tests. All and that he's, kind of he's, he's got certain autocratic tendencies. 
or because of the complexity of the U.S. government. This is a vastly complex machine. Will he be forced to have to rely on his um, various cabinet secretaries to create and execute policy? And so you'll get a kind of a polyglot government. And my thought is he probably will unless he takes bad press because of something one of them did, in which case he'll fire them. And so we're, we're now in a show. There's a television reality show being created here, which he's creating. And he is intentionally creating a reality show where he's the star. It's called Mr. President. And he is scripting everything. And he believes he can continue to get high ratings. Here's my final statement. High ratings in the television world is the definition of success. Ratings in the political world are ephemeral. They come and go with the passage of time. Yeah. So what's going to happen is the impact of the rhetoric will have to match the rhetoric itself. Or my guess is you're seeing his highest level of approval ratings now, which I'm going to guess are around 45%, 42%. We haven't seen a new number, but they're down at 36 yeah. a few weeks ago. And his ago. point, which I think is a valid one, is the pollsters all got it wrong in the campaign, so they're getting it wrong now, except for the pollsters probably got it right within three or four percentage points. And I think we're now outside of the three or four percentage point error level. Sure. Okay, great. Well, I think that's a good way to, to premise these predictions because predictions are... By definition, just predictions. <laughs> huh? Notoriously challenging. Uh, that said, I think, Ronaldo, let's start with what you're thinking about the unemployment figures because it's something we talk about a lot on this show. Right now we're at essentially structural full employment. Pretty uh, close to it. Or at least, yeah, close to it. So let me know, wh where do you think this is headed? So I just, I'm going to just add one thing to what you just said about my approach to this. So I usually have more courage in my predictions because I feel pretty good about the fundamentals they're based on and we've had a very good run at being, having them be accurate. But, or and... I gave that explanation of the uncertainty of the times as a way for people to understand why I can't have the same cast in concrete kind of certainty about them that I'd like to have. There are some things I'm pretty sure are going to happen, which I will predict. And let's start with unemployment. At 4.7% unemployment, I'm going to say we will never again see unemployment this low in the Trump era. When I say this low, is it possible it could drop to 4.6 or 4.5 for a month or so? Yes. It's, anything's possible for a month. It could be a statistical error could create that. A statistical revaluation could create that. But I'm talking about, we're at a floor. We've been there for a while now. We've been under 5% for a while. Right. And we're not going to be able to maintain this. It's going to go, the unemployment rate is going up over time. That you can count on. Do you want me to go into the reasons why, or should I just lay that on the table and let it sit there? Well, I think that's important to go into the reasons why, but let's do it in the context of even though Trump says jobs are his first priority, why will unemployment still go up? Because he doesn't understand the difference between creating a forcing, strong arming, a single... Uh, take Mary Barrett, president of General Motors. She said the 1,500 workers they're going to add in that new uh, uh, GM plant was on their drawing boards for a very long time, long before Trump was elected. I suspect that's true because in, in my own work in corporate America, uh, when we're going to open a new plant, uh, we know, or we're going to expand a plant, we know typically a year or more before it ever happens. And if it's a brand new plant in a new area, we know several years in advance because you have to plan for these things. So I suspect Mary Barra is telling the truth. And, you know, people who follow corporate executives, I think, would agree that Mary Barra, in the time she's run GM, has demonstrated that she's a first-rate executive. She's, she's, she's nobody's fool, and she's quite good at what she does. Um, so I believe that, that, that she had that 1,500 jobs that they're talking about already planned out. But let's say she did for a heck of it. Let's say that because Trump bludgeoned the automobile industry, they were going to create 1,500 jobs there and 1,000 jobs at some other plant, 1,000 jobs at some other plant, and you add it all up, and you might have, if you're lucky, five to 10,000 jobs, if you're lucky. Because remember... Well, these plants are built. They're run by robots. <laughs> these are not. This is not your father's GM, and this is not you know not guys bolting tires on on cars as they go by on an assembly line. So, I mean, there are some people like that, obviously, but the, the number is dramatically reduced. When you do that, in a month where you have to hit 180,000, 185,000 new jobs as we did the month before last, or 150,000 jobs as we did last month, 
or the 175,000 jobs that we've grown on average for the last, what, since 2009. Um, when you, or end of 2009, when, when you have to add those numbers of jobs, you have to do things that are structural. You have to do structural things. Or what happens is you end up adding showcase jobs that look good in the rhetoric, but when the number comes out, it's like, a, oops, we were attracting all this attention, and, he, and he's, he's a master at attracting attention where he wants it. You know, uh, Therefore, he will, I think, control the conversation. And I think that 35% of his people in the country who are his core base will take a long time to get discouraged. But everybody else is sort of watching to see where the shoes drop. And I don't think I've heard how he's going to create 175,000 jobs this month or next right. month. Right. And so if in the absence of that, there's a certain momentum that will continue on and a certain amount of the bonhomie in the business community. And because people are spending more, particularly in the retail and service sectors, we are hiring more people who will flip burgers and we're hiring more people who will wash drapes. And, you know, there's a lot of service jobs that have been created and they're not going away. But what's going to cause the new creation? What, where's the new wealth to the middle class going to come from? And particularly if, it's, if his policies are to favor the very wealthy in terms of taxation at the cost of the middle class. So let me give you one quick example. The Democrats ran on the idea, and now New York is actually going to try to pass legislation, college should be free for everyone. Uh, Elizabeth Warren put out, and I think Bernie Sanders endorsed the idea that we have to renegotiate. I think Hillary did, but she didn't say it very loudly. Renegotiate the student loan down or out. You know, let's, let's get this big monkey off the backs of students. If they did that, if Trump were to adopt that policy, which is populist, it would free up enormous resources to go into the economy. Enormous. Now, at the same time, is he going to go after the, the financial institution that was created to collect those college loans, which are at astronomically high rates, by the way. We're, we're gouging our students, our graduates. Especially graduate students. So we're gouging them. The company that collects those has now been caught defrauding in the term tens and tens of millions of dollars, defrauding the people they're collecting the money from. They've been caught at it, red-handed. What's the government going to do? If it's a laissez-faire government, which it sounds like is what Trump prefers, they're not going to do much. And all those people are going to have to go to independent lawyers to try and see if they can get their money back. Now, why is that important? Because whenever you do something that unlocks the ability of the little guy to spend, you unlock tremendous consumer value and you cause the economy to rise. If you do anything to inhibit that, or you just remain neutral, slowly but surely, consumer, the consumer will stop spending as much as a percentage of GDP, and the GDP will drop. Because they're being extracted by yeah. the existing paradigm yeah. of wealth inequality and yeah. policies that favor the upper, the upper echelons. Yeah, well, you know, what, if, what if, for example, in that case that's now pending um, down in Texas, I believe, the Justice Department argued it successfully, uh, has some interesting economic implications. I better not get distracted here. But basically, the Justice Department, in a case that's won at the trial level and at two appellate court levels, just sent a note in, you know, a quarter after 12, saying, wait a second, we're not so sure which side of the case we're on anymore. And, and, and so that kind of a reversal causes instability. And depending on how many people are affected by that, for example, in the case of Wells Fargo, Two million people were affected by this chicanery and cheating in the in the false accounts. Right. Uh, in other situations, it might be a smaller number. If he does nothing to help student loans, that's going to be a drag on the economy. If he helps student loans be reduced either in the percentage, or in the or in, in whether or not they're to be collected, or even better yet, whether or not we start going to free education, as New York is arguing, that unleashes money, lots and lots of money. So let's say New York is able to get that law passed next year. Imagine all the money that would have gone to tuition that now people can spend on buying a house, buying a car, buying a boat, buying whatever, clothing. So I'm, um, I'm very, very, very concerned. I'll give you one. Here, other. Here's another example of that. The Federal Housing Authority mortgage interest rate cut that was supposed to happen. Uh, it was going to change rates. I forget. It was, a, it was a small change, but it was you know a few hundred dollars a year per person. Their, their interest rates were going to go down. Right. And... 
the Trump administration put a hold on that and rolled and didn't allow it to go forward. Right. To save, you know, a few billion dollars, but it, that, right. that was going to go directly into low-income people, homeowners' pockets. Right. Now, and a few billion, because of the multiplier effect, which is everybody agrees exists, a few billion in the economy translates into 10 billion of growth of, of consumption. So it's five to one, roughly, a little over five to one. So uh, another example, and this is a good one, uh, what we are seeing right now in the way of this proposed, and there's a bill sitting in the House Ways and Means Committee today that is going that, that is going to, and the president seems to be in favor of it, the House seems to be in favor of it, to, tack a, to put a 35% tariff on anything made outside the United States. So this is a huge one. We really have to focus on this. This is mind-numbing. Because it, this hasn't happened in... I don't remember the last time there was anything close to this kind of a tax on imported goods. No, and, and in fact... Every Republican president since McKinley would say that the exports, um, import, uh, free, in other words, free trade is what they would call it. And anything that approaches free trade is positive for the economy. That which restrict, restricts free trade is bad for the economy. And we've been in a, uh, both sides, Democrats and Republicans, for many, many years have been trying to open global markets. And we've been a huge winner in that. So that open global markets term, that's interesting because a lot of people know what that means, but some people might not. That essentially means lowering these kind of barriers. Yeah. So barriers meaning tariffs, meaning taxing things at the border. Yeah. So, right? so why is it a, so, so, so Trump has articulated why he likes this tariff because it'll force automobile companies to make more automobiles in America. So they're You're proposing right. increasing uh, or imposing a 35% tax on any goods that come into the country on imports, is that yes, right? Yes, on imports. Now, the vast majority of workers don't work in the automobile industry. As I said a minute ago, they most people work in trucking and well, they work in services. trucking, they work in trucking is moving goods around. They work in services, they look they work in retail. So what happens if you put a tax like that? And, and, and I'm not speaking now on behalf of any kind of a democratically leaning consortium. I'm talking about the American Retail Association. So I'm talking about Walmart. I'm talking about Target. I'm talking about um, any company that sells goods direct to the public that has a significant import base, which all of them do. They don't believe they can pass a 35% tax on to the public. That The public won't pay it. They won't have the money to pay it. There is a, there's a uh, uh, an idea. It's not even an idea. The fantasy. So before we go there, I know what you're going to say next. Before we go there, so what you're saying is that these companies like Target and Walmart would have to pass on a 35 percent or so increase in the price of goods to all make to make up for that tax, right? Yeah. To all their customers, and probably even a higher percentage increase to make up for reduced consumption. Yeah, because what will happen is the volume of their sales, their retail sales, will collapse. I mean, just start plummeting down. So people will stop buying new. Yeah, you'll see double digit toasters, and you'll see double digit sales drops in the very and... first year. Double digits, which is you know, retail companies that drop ten percent in sales have a hard time making it because you're not used to that in the brick and mortar world. I'm not talking about Amazon, although Amazon itself will be affected. Amazon because, will have to do it too, yeah. won't they? Well, they will because it's thirty five percent. But I'm saying if you don't have bricks, if you don't have stores, physical stores, you have some insulation, but not much. And if you import, which Amazon does, it's gonna it's just gonna hit retail like a, a wrecking ball. So the number of jobs that will be lost on that will be ten jobs lost for every job gained, or more. And the theory is that, or his his his, uh, you know, I, some people are saying that this thing's hanging out there as just a threat to China as a negotiating position. But, Could be, but he, his rhetoric is that this would create American manufacturing jobs, right? People yeah, would have which, to yeah. ramp up production and yeah. buy Carhartt yeah. jackets instead of... And first of all, you can't do it overnight if you wanted to. I mean, if he ordered every car company in the world to stop importing cars, what would happen is you'd have fewer cars to sell. And within a certain number of years, you could build enough plants. But we sold 15 and a half million cars last year. Where are they going to come from? We don't have enough factories to make 15 and a half million cars. And, 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 and what happens to the cars that we make that no one else makes that we'd like to export, like the Bolt from General Motors, like the, like the, uh, the Volt, as opposed to the Bolt, the Volt? Um, what about the people who uh, are buying Ford trucks all over the world? Number Teslas. one selling trucks. Teslas. Um, you know, it goes on and on. I mean, it's, just, it's crazy, right? And by the way, even for companies that try to manufacture a lot in the U.S., like Caterpillar, 
they'll get creamed because all the people overseas will be paying duties on Caterpillar tractors. So goodbye, Caterpillar. Come on in Komatsu. That's what's going to happen. So, so it's, 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 it, it, and, and by the way, there is one, and I call this fanciful thinking. There is one ridiculous economic argument given in favor of this, which is that the American dollar will prove to be so strong that it will rise by 35%, thereby nullifying the tariff. That shows two things, whoever says it. Number one, they haven't got a clue about economics because that isn't even remotely how it works. <laughs> Number two, the American dollar doesn't have a 35% run-up left in it. It's already at historic highs. It's, it's, it's historic highs. And frankly, if you look at something as weak, and I wish people would, at the Brazilian, pace, the Brazilian real, it has regained about 1% from the low it hit even six, seven months ago. Um, the euro continues to go down. It's now at, I think, 93 cents to the dollar, which is nobody ever thought would be possible to go below parity. The Canadian dollar is low at 75 cents. I predict it will go up starting in about a year uh, uh, and maybe sooner under certain circumstances. So th there isn't going to be this 35% gain in the American dollar. Where is that going to come from? And if his theory is it's going to come from all the people who want their dollars in America because they'll be the only economy because we'll be making everything here. That's just crazy talk. Now, who's the second biggest economy in the world? China. China. Okay. Bigger than Japan. Okay. What do they do? They export like crazy. But as it turns out, most people haven't noticed this, China has gone from a 90 plus percent export driven economy. It's only 55% now meaning they're now producing 45% of their own consumption and every year it's growing faster. So they don't need us to As maintain, much, yeah. no, because they they already stole our technology. <laughs> they, they, took, they stole it a couple of years ago. They, they've taken what we had to, to bootstrap them. They got it now. They got the people and they got rising incomes and they have no desire to want to import if they don't have to. The only reason they would import would be to keep our markets open. So if we close our markets to China or we tariff China, two things happen. Yes, China will have a hiccup because they're not a stuff. All the stuff that Walmart buys, it ain't going to keep buying. But at the end of the day, it's not going to begin to compensate for the increased costs on the U.S. side, which would then mean decreased consumption purchasing, which then means an, an economy that will fall rather than rise. Now, I'll give you one personal example. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board, have been for 28, 29 years of a public company called Tailored Brands. And we acquired a factory in uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts a few years ago. That Joseph Abood was running when we worked on our deal with Joseph. And I believe, if memory serves me correct, there about 320 people in that factory that were working there. And that's all that the factory could afford. Today, that's dub over double that number. And the reason it's double is, A, because we put so much volume in it. B, we started a school to train people how to cut, stitch, and sew so that we could have more Americans working in it because we want to be able to say made in America. And we came up with this idea, you know, four years ago. This was not our reaction to Donald Trump. This is our thinking. What can we do to drive down the costs in America and the speed of delivery to the customer goes up? That's what we were trying to do. And we've achieved it. Uh, our Joseph Abu decision is doing extremely well. Well, that factory is sort of capped out. I mean, people in Massachusetts are telling us, if you want to hire more people, go 30, 40 miles down the road. We don't commute like they do in California. And start a new factory down there. And the point of this is, even though we want, we own the company, we want to grow the factory size, we want to hire more people, we are limited to how fast we can do that. And we're trying, because we have a very profitable operation there. So that attempt to move onshore all kinds of offshoring activities... It sounds okay, but it's fanciful thinking because you can't wave a wand and give me tailors who are going to you know, make suits for me. Right, it's a process. It takes it's a time. process. And, 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 it, and it increasingly is a process that requires integration with other companies' activities offshore. So even if you were Walmart and you decided to start making some percentage of your products domestically, you're still going to be dependent for the other 80% on, on China. In other countries. So that's one trap that this administration could kind of bumble into is a, right. is a cratering retail sector as a result of a, essentially a, a kicking off a trade war. Is that, that yeah. and, it, it? and it would not take much for the retail sector to have a huge hiccup on this. And, and, you know, that's my overview in terms of my 
paying close attention to the news and are paying close attention to the international economy, you know, things like Brexit and things like this kind of isolationist type of threat are really dangerous to the international economic order. Say what you will about the morality of the international economic order. My point is that it's it's held together by these arrangements and the neoliberal kind of free trade agenda. And, and shutting it off in one fell swoop could be extremely destabilizing in the short term. Yeah, by the way, just let's touch on Brexit for a second. For those who didn't pay attention, huge decision came out yeah. yesterday. So the, the, the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Britain passed a final decision which instructs the government that Parliament must vote for Brexit before the government can choose to pull out. That the, that the uh, referendum they had there in, in the UK cannot be binding until Parliament adopts it because it took a parliamentary act to join the union. It must take a parliamentary act to leave the union. And that's a really important distinction. And I hope, and I don't, by the way, I'm not particularly impressed with May. Remember, May was a low-level backbencher who, did, you know, backbencher is a term in the, in, in the UK, folks, that means someone of little distinction. She was, she was a, a low-level backbencher, and when the government blew apart over Brexit, she was the only one willing to pick up the pieces because it was going to be such a hot potato. And um, I don't think she's a mental giant, and I don't think she's been sophisticated in how she's been managing expectations. And as you know, Matt, I read the Financial Times every day of London. So I'm keeping close track of this. And and she got a reprieve. If if Parliament is smart, it will not pass Brexit. If they, if they pass Brexit, I can assure you that's predictable. Britain, as a major player, will continue on a very, very long-term downward slide. Now, what is she trying to do to dampen the effects of Brexit? She's coming to see Trump, first visitor, since he got inaugurated. What's she asking for? Bilateral Bilateral deal. trade deal. Right. Give me enough trade with the UK that I can cover what I'm going to lose in, 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 in Europe. How is he going to accomplish, even if he wants to, how can he accomplish that? Now, why am I bringing that up? Be- two reasons. One, it, 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 May doesn't understand the nature of the problem. The reason why companies locate in London and in the UK generally is so they have access to the European Union. They want 350 million well-heeled customers. They like an English-speaking city yes. where they can do business with the rest it's, of Europe. It's, it's the bridge to Europe. And Europe's the biggest trade partner with the US. Yes, of course it is. Yeah, well, the single biggest, of course, is Canada as a country. But I mean, as a, as a block. As a union, yeah, the European Union is the biggest. Yeah. So, so even, and she can't understand much about economics, this woman. So even if Trump says, oh, gee, I'll do the best deals you want. I'll do a deal you love. What's the deal going to be? If I can't use the UK to get to Europe, all of a sudden I lose the 320 million customers I'm after. And they can't consume that much in UK by themselves. Now, What's the biggest industry in the UK? It's finance, right? Probably in terms of dollar impact. Yeah. Which, what are they financing? Deals, Deals in Europe. In, Europe. <laughs> in the U.S., yeah, exactly. Um, so so take, a, um, take that, that, that visit from May. When Trump signed an executive order a couple days ago to end the discussions over TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, if you heard, you've been listening to the show, you know, I like. I'm glad he killed TPP. Bernie Sanders is glad he killed TPP. Elizabeth Warren is glad he killed TPP. Labor unions are glad he killed TPP. So we're all with him on that one. But he said at the signing on his desk that day, and now what we're going to do is we're going to negotiate a deal one-on-one with every one of those countries. Again, bilateral trade. Exactly what May is talking about. The question you have to ask yourself, if you do the best deal in the world with a country like Vietnam, who was the TPP party, how many of those you got to do before you make up a China? How many of those you got to do before you make up a Europe? The answer is you, you can't put enough together. So while I'm glad he's going to look at these countries individually, what I think is a, a fallacy that, that we're operating off at this point is that somehow unilateral trade deals that would exempt you from this 35% tariff will give us the ability to isolate China and work with everybody else in the world. That will not happen. First of all, China's too big. Can't happen. Second of all, look at what China's doing with all of the money it's already got. It's basically buying Africa. And building infrastructure. And it's now buying Latin America and building infrastructure. And and you're talking about what they're done. They've gone after natural resources, right? So 
what I think is going to have to happen is that someone's got to take a smart pill and go, wait a minute, we can't do a 35% tariff on China. That'll kill Walmart. It'll kill Target. It'll kill all the retailers. What we could do is negotiate one-on-one -on -one with China as you would with Brexit with May to maximize the opportunities of what we can do in the U.S. that China wants and let them do what they can do best that we want. Example, I hate, would hate to see all the softwares and control that we sell now to China go to Britain or France. Okay. I'd hate to see um, the partnerships that are developing in wind and solar where they're making the stuff and we get to use it and the price is dirt cheap. So we're dropping dramatically the cost of our electricity. There's lots to work on that could work for them. I mean, I want them to make all the windmills they can. I want them to make all the photovoltaic they can. But at the end of the day, if we're going to slap a 35% tariff on them, you know what that's going to do to wind and solar? I mean, it's crazy. It's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean... That might not be by accident. All right, well, that's that's all really interesting. We'll keep watching it. I think that that's really important, Ronaldo. You know, the, the other pieces for the unemployment numbers, and again... Hard to predict, but the the Pudzer nomination. What's is that? How you pronounce his name? Yeah, Pudzer. He's the former uh, CEO or still CEO of Hardee's. Yeah, he's stepping down. He's going to step down. Unlike Trump, who's still the executive. Producer. You know, he lives. He lives here right now. Pudzer lives in Santa Barbara. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. So what do you what do you think about him as the Department of Labor uh, to lead the Department of Labor? Well, first of all, I can tell you, I've actually in my history here in town, I've actually hired some ex employees of his that worked in his corporate office who have a very, very negative view of him personally. Um, people think he's a he's very hard taskmaster. Uh, they don't like his value set. And they think he's, um, he's a very, very strident kind of guy. Now, as to his policies, um, he's come out, he's against the minimum wage. Doesn't think there should be one at all. He's against bathroom breaks for his employees. How's that work? Well, he just doesn't want to pay him. Ah. Clock out, clock in. Why should I pay you to go to the bathroom? He, so, I mean, this this guy, if this guy, if this was the year 1880, he'd be running one of the biggest slaughterhouses in Chicago. You're running the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, whatever it's called? Yeah. So, the, the, the point of this is, the position he's supposed to be holding is to represent labor in this very important chunk this mosaic which makes the American economy work. Those people who want labor to be destroyed will think Pudzer's a great idea. However, what they don't realize is if you destroy labor, and you might want to do it because you think politically they represent the Democrats too much, but when, if you destroy la our ability to organize labor, you've removed an incredible chunk of what makes the American economy work. And you don't want to do that. And so to me... The Pudzner nomination is not only, and there's several in this category. I think price uh, is the same at human Health and Human Services. I think, um, what's his face over at EPA? Uh, it's, 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 it's like a, it's the thumb in your eye. It's, it's not even like a neutral, mildly he's in favor of industry kind of appointment. It's like, take that. Take that organized labor with Pudzer. Scott Pruitt at EPA. Pruitt right. at EPA. Uh, so the whole point is, I think some of these appointments are just crazy. Some of them. I'm amazed that Rex Tillerson got through. Or it seems like he's going to get through. But because of the Russian I think connection. he did get through, yeah. We got through the oh, committee. Yeah, he got through the committee. Yeah. He so he'll, the get, he'll get through the Senate, yeah. Well, you don't know. I mean, you, you could have something odd happen there. You could have a Susan Collins or someone who... Puts really, a hold on him or something. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, um, how is he going to represent the American interests when historically he has always represented his interests at Exxon over America's interests. Now you can say, well, that wasn't his job then, now it's his job. Okay, I hope that's true. But given the things that he has done, uh, given the blind eye he has turned many times to allowing dictators to use his money and his deals to suppress their own people, their own populations, uh, given how he has been, at best, I would say, amoral, and how he has been basically the deal industry guy of the last 10 years in the oil industry, 
Uh, I'm um, I'm troubled that, that that would make him qualify to be Secretary of State. Yeah. But he's going to get in. Well, I can at least say about Rex Tillerson, he's smart as hell. If he did want to do the job, he could. I mean, Exxon runs its own State Department, basically. And so he would know how to do it. And he's run Exxon, so he knows how to run a big organization like Foggy Bottom. But he, he does not strike me as having the right intentions. Now, if he had the right intentions, great, he could do the job. I don't think Puzner could do the job if he did have the right intentions. I don't think it's in his, it's not in his, it's not in his competency. Or Pruitt or Price. Or Pruitt, yeah. Price. And, yeah. and Price, you know, I mean, the Price has been caught red-handed making money off of transactions from stock where he buys it a week before he puts a bill in that'll help the company, sells it, you know, a few months later, makes fifty dollars to $100,000. I mean, that that's going on is insane. But hey, when you got a president who clearly is doing his best to benefit economically from his office. Uh, and I, you know, you, for those people who don't know, there was a lawsuit that either was filed on, on Tuesday or was going to be filed and announced on the Emoluments Clause. Well, we could go off on that for a while, yeah. And no, I'm just saying, it's, just, it's interesting. I'm, not, I'm just going to note that it happened because this is new territory. Absolutely. It's yeah. the first time in the history of the United States that anybody's ever questioned basically the independence of the executive well that leads us to into the oil question and i think we should go there next okay uh, because we've uh, spent a lot of time on unemployment here which is very important but the other the other thing that just happened is that the uh the pipeline the um, two pipelines the but the, the specifically the dakota access pipeline yeah we know for a fact and the white house press secretary confirmed that trump's own company Owns uh, owns stock in that company that owns the Dakota Access Pipeline project. Well, now, to to be fair though, he, one of his representatives said that he sold it in June. We don't know that that's true. There's no record of it. But... I have to look, I have to look and pull that quote, and I'll do it right now. But what we're looking at potentially is a president potentially benefiting from a decision he just made. Yeah, but you know, I, I, he's doing that already. Do you know what the value? I mean, of the Trump Hotel is because he's now president. A thing that was a money losing. I mean, and that's, that, he, that he leases from his himself. From the government, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that thing was an albatross, and now he's getting eight hundred dollars a night. Uh, I think he they had one suite up for half a million bucks for the inauguration. So, you know, he's going to make money all over the globe with his properties. On the other hand, I think sooner rather than later, people are going to wonder if it's in their interests to be in a Trump property. For example, how would you like to be living in the Trump Tower right now? I wouldn't. No. I mean, I got to tell you, whatever they paid for those units, they've lost their privacy. They've lost the ability to get in and out. Um, they're, they're, it, it's a very, very questionable uh, situation. And you go, if I want my privacy and I'm willing to pay extra for it, why am I in this fishbowl with all these security people all over the place? So I'm not sure it's going to be in people's interest to keep paying the high end for Trump, particularly when he gets picketed around the world, which he will. So I'm really, you know, I think it's it's a mixed bag. But but Dakota Pipeline. Yeah. So let's, I want to go let, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about oil prices in general. We talked about Tillerson. Let's talk about what you're seeing. Okay, and well, where so, we're going. Okay, so first of all, this is an important statistic, folks. OPEC, for the first time in history, got the agreement of non-OPEC members, notably Russia, to agree to a 1.8 million barrel a day cut in production. It did that because. Oil was bobbing around 46 to $48 a barrel. And they wanted to get the price back up to around $75 a barrel. So if you lower supply, price goes up. Drop supply by a million eight barrels a day, price will go up. Happy days are here again. So let's take a look at what actually happened. Russia has already cut 100 of the 300,000 barrels a day it promised to cut. The total amount of cuts across all the different suppliers is 1.5 million barrels a day have been cut. Already. So 1.5 out of 1.8. Where's the price of oil? $52, $53 a a barrel. Why? Because, and and I was really delighted when we were, um, when I was looking at, I I, I was reading the Financial Times this morning, uh, and I noticed there was an article on the finance page from BP, British Petroleum, headlined, the glut is basically, the long-term glut's here to stay. And BP is is basically warning its share owners the value on our st- of our oil on our books is probably less than can be recovered and sold at a profit. Now that's me, a big that's a big that's a big one. And we've talked about this admission. a couple I times mean, that's, before. It's that's huge. unprecedented. It's unprecedented. And so let me just tell you, when you value an oil company stock, as we've said on the show before, 
one of the key things that you look at for valuation is how many barrels of, 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 of true guaranteed recoverable oil. Those are called your reserves. If it's maybe we can recover it, we're not sure, you can't put it into reserves. Proven reserves is the exact concept they use, the word proven reserves. Rolling Stone did an article, I think it was Matt Taibbi about a year ago, in which he correctly calculated that probably half of all the proven reserves currently on the oil company books could not economically be recovered and sold. BP said the same thing today. And up to half on their books can't be profitably recovered and sold. Now, that's incredible because what it means is that every oil stock of the majors with heavy reserves is probably prone to come down significantly and fairly soon. In fact, it won't be long if it was a normal Security and Exchange Commission, SEC. The SEC would probably require a write-down. But the SEC we're going to get for the next four years most likely won't. Any other company or industry dealing with this kind of a tragedy would have to do a write-down. Now, so can we see a, a more accurate picture from other oil companies that aren't in the U.S., like BP? I, I got to tell you, I think Rex Tillerson did a genius thing getting himself a point in this position because he, he got a chance to sell all his stock and the market didn't penalize him because, oh, I'm selling it so I can be Secretary of State. He's getting on at the high. Now, if he'd have sold it all and he wasn't running for Secretary of State, his stock would have cratered because, oh, if Rex is selling, better get out. So he got out at the high. But if you want to make money in the next five years, short sell Exxon. You can short sell BP. You can short sell Shell. And for those of you who don't know what a short sell is, Ask me on, send me an email, and I'll be happy to explain it. But if you want to, you want to make a bunch of money, short sell those oil company stocks. You'll be glad you did. Now, why is that important? Because the forces of the marketplace is what is going to drive the price of oil. And now that OPEC's taken its best shot, and it didn't work, and the reason it didn't work in part is because we can frack oil in America for forty-six dollars a barrel. So when the oil's at 52, 53, we're just going to frack more. How are we going to get all that oil to market so we can drive down the price of oil? The Dakota Pipeline. So I'm against the Dakota Pipeline. I don't think we should build the Dakota Pipeline. But the Dakota Pipeline is only going to make it that much more efficient to put more oil in the market to drive prices down lower. So oil prices aren't going up, and the Dakota Pipeline is not going to do them any good. Now, in one sense, it does because it's cheaper to send oil through a pipeline than through a train. So in that sense, you're getting cheaper transportation costs. But if the net-net is that the refinery in Houston is pumping out oil-related products, for example, on the world market, because that's where all oil goes, it's the world market, and it's a couple bucks cheaper a barrel or a dollar cheaper a barrel to get it there, that can be reflected in the sales price, which now is going to compete even more favorably against expensive oil like you're going to find coming out of the rest of the world. So where's the price of oil going to go? Ain't going to go much above where it is now and probably going to go way down. And... Went way down, meaning at least five bucks a barrel. And if so, 53 to 48 would be a reasonable expectation in the next two years. But in addition to that, what else is costing the oil, the oil to go down? Well, because natural gas is constantly being substituted for it economically. Some countries, China being one of them, can no longer afford the pollution that comes from burning oil or coal. Okay, coal's already toast. And, not, and, and no government decree is going to bring coal back. Coal's uneconomic. In and China, it, they're, still, they're still building coal plants, but they recently decided to slow some down and take some off. The... And, and, and they will, because no, they'll, they'll, they're, they're, they're literally choking to death. But here's the fun one. So yesterday you heard that the EPA was instructed, get rid of the rules that require coal plants to put out cleaner exhaust, basically. Guess what? Ain't going to change the reality. Coal still is not coming back. Because it's still it's not economic even if they don't scrub it. So you can't stop a marketplace force. Last but not least, what you're going to find is all the developed countries in the world, including the U.S., whether the government likes it or not, is going to continue to electrify its transportation system. So it's going to be putting more natural gas into its utility systems, its grid, and it's going to be driving cars that are inherently more efficient, burn less fuel, and in many cases are electric or hybrids. And that trend will continue indefinitely. So demand for oil will also continue to go down as it has, or flatline. Correct. It, it will flatline at best for, say, the next five years, and 
it'll go up a tiny bit maybe because of population change, but not much, not enough to make up for the additional oil that's available. And then after flatlining for a few years, then it will start to drop. And that drop will be, uh, it won't change. Now let's go to the Dakota pipeline. Um, the, the XL, Keystone, yeah, the Keystone. Keystone XL pipeline. So the Dakota will get built. There's a good customer for it. The oil companies in North Dakota, and it'll move money, uh, oil to market cheaper. So it's it's got a it's going to happen if the public lets it. I, I I I seriously hope this doesn't happen. But that is one project, the Dakota pipeline, where you could see uh, civil disobedience turn into civil violence uh, and sabotage. The Keystone XL. No, I'm talking about Dakota. Oh, Dakota, yeah. Dakota. You could see sabotage. And I hope not, and I think more of my Native American brothers but and sisters, but um, there's so much animosity about the sacred burial grounds being impinged on that it is possible. Because, you know, if you really want to hurt somebody bad in the oil pipeline business, it's really easy to do. So, you know what's interesting there? Just a little caveat here. I know we don't have tons of time, but... The, the reason it's called Sacred Stone Camp, where the Native Americans are protesting this this place where the, the pipeline's supposed to cross the river. Across the reservation, that corner. Yeah. And that, that corner and that Sacred Stone Camp is because that part of the river flows in such a way that rocks, these big boulders, sit there and spin for years and years and years and years and turn into almost perfect spheres. So the Native Americans call it Sacred Stones. The name of the river, from the western point of view, is the Cannonball River. So where they sell cannonballs, you know, Native Americans saw sacred stones, and that's such a metaphor for this fight. It's not going anywhere. It's going to get real, real big before it gets any. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and that's a bad riverbed to put an oil pipeline underneath. So you're gonna have to dig it pretty deep. But 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 I think that because the economics are there, short of sabotage and violence, the Dakota pipeline's going through. I'm not sure about the Exile pipeline. I think its day may have come and gone. Why? Because Canada cannot well, it loses money on every barrel of tar sands oil it produces, as you know. And even if you make it a buck or two a, a barrel cheaper to move that oil from, say, Alberta to Houston, which is all you're talking about, a buck or two a barrel, you're losing money when it goes into the pipeline. You're just losing less of it. But you're still losing money. So there won't be any new tar sands projects brought online. Now, unlike fracking, which goes up and comes down in six to nine months, or a year, worst case, best case. Um, tar sands aren't like that. Once you got them going, you keep going. Well, if you look at the two two of the largest companies in the tar sands business, one of them profits are dropped down by over $2 billion a year. One's dropped by $1.8 billion. I don't know how long they're going to be able to keep this up. And one of the reasons they haven't stopped so much oil is because they're afraid if they do, they'll have to take such what are called impairment charges, which means a massive write-off. They could cripple or bankrupt either or both companies. Now, you could play that game for a while and pray that oil prices are going to come back to $100 a barrel. But anything under $75 in your deep yogurt, I'll go another step. Under $100 a barrel, Russia is going to continue to decline as an economic power. It needs $100 a barrel oil just to pay its bills and keep its pensioners happy. It's not going back to $100. You know what's worth. amazing? I heard that the average Russian has less less wealth than the average Indian from India. Could be. It's amazing. Could be. That's Could how be. bad the oligarchy's gotten. I mean, that's how bad the split between it's, rich and poor is. It is totally mismanaged economy. And, you know, but Putin is a very clever autocrat. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a monarch. He, he's, you know, he's never going to give up power. He's a, in fact, he's in his tradition, you call him a czar. And he's got, I don't know, 14, 16 palaces to prove it. In fact, the largest Russian czar palace ever built is his on the Black Sea. So, bigger than Peter the Great's. So, so, I, uh, so the point of this is the Exxon pipeline, the Keystone pipeline, XL, may be a deal that by the time they get going and restart it, doesn't have economic merit over the long haul, over a 20, 30 year horizon. We'll see. Because if I were doing the performers on that pipeline, I go, how much oil is Canada going to keep sending if it's losing money on every barrel? Remember, there is no economic advantage. Not one penny goes to the U.S. or any citizen of the U.S. for that pipeline. That Once constructed, the pipeline delivers oil from Canada down to Houston, and it gets shipped from Houston offshore. So there's no benefit to the U.S. economy. It's what we're doing is allowing our oil companies to benefit, but we as a nation don't benefit. 
Now, one more point on the on the XL pipeline that's really critical. The XL pipeline is in competition ultimately with the pipeline that's almost constructed that the Canadians have built over to Vancouver. So if you're if, if you're the Canadian government and you want to be able to ship more oil to Vancouver and from there to China, which is easier than going to Houston, you can do it if they'll take your crude. If you want refined products, you got to go to Houston. If I were the Canadian government, Trudeau, I would put a tax of a dollar or two dollars a barrel or something, okay, you know, a carbon tax, on every barrel of oil shipped through the pipeline, and I'd use it to build refineries in Vancouver that can crack the oil into reformed products that you can sell directly into the foreign markets. In other words, do what they're doing in Houston, but do it in Vancouver or in the Western provinces. That, to me, would make a whole lot more sense. So, you know, Trudeau is an environmentalist. I don't think he even likes selling oil at all. But if he's going to do it, he ought to make some money on it. And if you put that on top of the Keystone Pipeline, holy cow, that really makes it uneconomic. Because they're only got, they got a $2 a barrel advantage over trains right now. So that's a massive amount of capital to sink in the ground for a $2 advantage if Trudeau were to put a $2 per, per barrel tax, which is not that much $2 per barrel. So I, I just think this is, a, this is one to watch and see. The government can only do so much. It may not control that one. So, Ronaldo, let's go quickly here, because we're running a little low on time, to inflation. Yeah. Um, what are you seeing, and what's, you know, quickly what's causing it, and where do you see it coming out? Okay, so it's, it, inflation is going up. Um, and um, part of why I issued, and this is a tweet I did last week, folks. So um, I, Monday of last week, I said, I'm changing my portfolio. I'm going to go from 10% gold to 15% gold, meaning I'm actually buying gold metal through fund through through um, through funds through no no low mutual funds. One of the reasons I'm doing that is because I believe that inflation is coming, and gold is a great basically a hedge that you can use against inflation. I would be just delighted if people would write up and ask me why that is, and, you know, and I can explain it and take people's time. But since no one's asked why that's true, I'll just say it's true. Everybody knows it's true. All economists would agree with me. But if, if any of these listeners want to know why it's true, I'll be happy to explain it. The point is, it's true. So if, you're, if inflation's going to increase, then owning gold is not a bad thing. You're, you're downside protected. You're not earning anything on your gold, but you're not going to be losing. And your gold prices will stay roughly in line with inflation. The second reason, though, that I increased in gold is because of my concern of the uncertainty we talked about at the beginning of the hour. There are so many things that could accidentally happen that no one's planning for, not the Trump administration, not the Republicans in Congress, and they just happen because nobody knows any better, like that 35% tax, and all of a sudden you got chaos, in which case gold will jump, because gold is both a hedge against inflation and it's where you seek refuge in times of instability. So I've gone from 10 to 15. Now let's just focus on the first part of that equation, inflation. As we said in this show last fall uh, and several times since, wage is are going up on the bottom. One of the sources of inflation is what's called wage push inflation. So when wages go up, it pushes up prices with it. Again, happy to explain it in detail, but we're short on time. That's what happens. So that force is already at work, wage push. And when you give money to the cheap, to the people with the lowest amount of economic spending, like minimum wage people, when you give them a dollar, they're going to spend 100% of that dollar for something, food, shelter, clothing, whatever. You give a dollar to a Donald Trump or a billionaire, and you're going to, it's going to end up in a savings account or in an investment. It's not, it's not going to go to buy any good or any goods. It's not going to go back into the economy. It doesn't go back into the economy. Right. Okay? And that's why you have, I think it's eight individuals now have as much wealth as uh, five billion people combined on the planet. That's just bizarre. But... So you give them another dollar, it's not going to change their spending pattern. You know, it's not going to mean Bill Gates will get a bigger jet than the jet he's got. He's already got the jet he wants. Okay. Now, let's talk, though, for a second about if you combine that wage price, that wage push inflation, with rising rates of interest, which has already started. Quarter point came up in the fall. We predicted that. We predicted that there'll be at least three and maybe four more quarter point bumps this year. So the Fed's raising rates. Fed's raising rates. Interest is going up. Makes borrowing more expensive. Makes borrowing more expensive. And that cost is passed on through. To the consumer. Okay. And the reason they had the rates down at zero was because they were trying to stimulate spending. They got it. So spending is going up because wages are going up and because the economy has been getting healthy for so long. So the Fed's going, oops, we don't want to 
get into a terrible inflationary spiral, we better start pushing up rates. And they did it. Third thing happening. So number one, wage push. Number two, Fed rate hikes. Number three, everything we see come out of Washington just reeks of deficit spending. Massive deficit, massive deficit spending. If you're there, gonna, if there's, you're, not, there's not going to be a raise in taxes. They're going to cut taxes. They're going to cut taxes, but they're also going to spend money in all kinds of places, like every. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't, if you don't cut, some, well, if you raise the ta- if you lower tax for me, as a one percenter, and I don't raise taxes on other people, that money's deficit. Yeah. Okay. If you, and by the way, if you look at the ratio. Because people talk about deficit. If you look at the ratio of deficit to GDP in the last four years, it's actually been stable. It hasn't gone up. So if you if you if you look at that phenomenon, that if I want a tax break and I'm going to get one under Trump, we all know that's coming. Somebody's got to get taxed more, or you have deficits. Now add one more for that. If you want to do massive infrastructure spending, you have to cut somewhere else, more taxes or more inflation. If you want to, as they apparently do, to increase military spending, even above the outrageously high levels it is now, deficit spending. So whenever you do deficit spending, you create inflationary pressure. These three together constitute an inescapable rise of inflation. The only question any legitimate, reputable economist can say is, we don't know how much and we don't know how fast, but you know what's going up. And that's where it is. That's it is going. So inflation this year, I believe in 2016, ran about uh, 1.5, percent, something like that. Uh, I'm going to see it double at least in 2017, and that might be an optimistic assessment. We'll see what happens because there's some things that could happen that would make it go up even faster. Well, with that being said, are you ready to wrap up, Ronald? Any final thoughts? Well, my final thought is please. Take my Twitter feed because I'd like to be able to send you information, you know, as soon as it happens. Um, another final thought: uh, a lot of people start asking, "Where's Putin going to go now after Crimea and Ukraine?" I think it's Kosovo. If anybody wants to know why, please write me, and we'll find. I'll tell you. But the bottom line is, neither Russia nor Serbia ever agreed that Kosovo should be a separate country, and therefore, what Russia will do is will it will aid Serbia, I believe, in taking Kosovo back. Watch for a battle there. And then last but not least, I, I'm a man who believes in Gandhi-esque principles. I believe in peace is better than conflict. I'm troubled by what could happen in terms of the current situation. The, the, I see our citizens becoming more divided. I see an administration that talks to its base not to healing the divide. I see a variety of things coming which people might be so frustrated by they have no other option but to, or they feel they have no other option but to become violent. Uh, And I hope and pray that won't be true because I'd like to think we can get through this without violence and get to the other side. But I am troubled. It is highly uncertain times we live in. And stay tuned because we will keep our eye on every single one of these issues and hopefully help you find some way to find safety for your own financial well-being. So with that, Ronaldo, I want to thank our listeners for listening. And do follow Ronaldo, which is twitter.com forward slash Ronaldo Brudico. I'll put a link in the show notes. And do one more, one more commercial, would you? Yep. Tell everybody to get a free copy of Daily Optimist. They, they need to stay, now more than ever, we need to stay up to optimistic between demonstrations. Absolutely. So we'll send a link to the Optimist Daily as well. And uh, until next month, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon.